My name's Tracy Smith. I was born and raised in Kalamazoo, Michigan. In 1998, I attended the South by Southwest Film Festival in Austin, Texas. And at a promotional side event at a local coffee house, I saw a showcase featuring some of the most talented performance poets in the country. Afterwards, I returned home and founded the Kalamazoo Poetry Slam. Now, almost 25 years later, for the sake of history, for the sake of nostalgia, and for some of the incredibly talented people we've lost along the way, I give you, dear listener, the Keizu Poetry Slamcast. This is Slam Poem. Later, like, the poems are like, you dirty fucking whore. But this is one of the good ones from the beginning. My ears reach in the suburban noise of night. There's a question asked in one naked moment that never crossed into I am the Smith. I am the poet. I am the Industrial Revolution. No longer bright as fireflies. No the sweet nature of the future and the reasons that we sing. This week's Poetry Slam cast is a long one, over an hour and 35 minutes or so. Now, normally a show that long I would cut up into two parts, but I already posted Danny Solis' performances from this show a few weeks back in episode 25, and I didn't want to remove his performances from this recording, and it felt weird to cut it into two parts. So you're getting an extra long one. Uh, some of it you've heard before. You can always fast forward, but I don't think you will, because Danny's awesome. And the first round of the semifinals that year, and the rest of the semifinals and the finals, kicked ass. So here it is. I know, you know, I can feel the, the tension in here, and uh, it's it's kind of cool. I really dig it. And I've been on I've been on seven different Poetry Slam teams, and I've done pretty well in my time, and uh, my my little bit of advice to all the people that, people that are slamming tonight, you know, after all these years, what I can offer you is just don't suck when you come up on stage. Um, anyway, here's a poem. Not in the book that I'm selling, by the way, which uh, I don't know, I probably should be plugging myself and trying to sell shit, but I don't really care about that. Yeah, please, please buy my stuff. It is times like this when I feel the old blood inside stirring, heating the new Mexican, Mexicano, Chicano. I am listening to Los Lobos, guitarron and accordion spinning out generations of dignified grief, the soothing and sharpening of sorrow by tequila's wet kiss. Listening to the thrum, pop, and cry of congas, Chepito talking bells, and the crack, boom, splash of timbales, Santana's guitar, wailing blue fire. And I think about cutting off these long dreads and slicking back whatever is left to look more like my folks want me to. Like my Uncle Joe, the drunken barroom brawler. Or like my father, the 60-hour-a-week man, the never-miss-a-beat man, the... Ladies' man on weekends, much to my mother's sorrow. And I think of my Uncle Jesse, a huge man, full of laughter, bow hunter, and the best dancer in the family. And something inside churns, shifts, slow moving, like the juice inside the maguey. And I think of my mother raising her four younger brothers, following the crops from Michigan to Southern California to Texas and back again. And I think of my grandmother, Bruga 
curandera, or both, casting spells and prayers by candlelight, pulling three-year-old me out of near-lethal fever that had baffled every doctor in the hospital. And I think of my grandfather at age 14 in the coal mines of West Texas, pitting 14-year-old muscle and bone and tendon and pickaxe against sledgehammer and bowie knife-wielding bullies and winning. And a deeper thing takes hold of what I am and being who I am. There is no part that is not touched, burned, stroked, clutched by the heat and laughter, by the songs and tears, by all the lives of wildness and self-sacrifice, by all the lives of muscle and wisdom and gamble it took to come here. The old blood and songs mixing with, igniting the new, incandescent, unmistakably bladed and branded, simmered and shimmering, Mexican, Mexicano, Chicano. Thank you very much. Okay, it's time. It's time! Woo! Okay. First off, do I have all of my judges in the room? I think I do. Could you hold up your pads for me? Let's hold those pads up so I can see them and count them so I know that you're all here. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. Four, four, five. Okay, where are you at? Okay. <laughs> okay, so they're all here. And, and I got my, my scorekeeper. I got my scorekeeper. And I got my timekeeper. Do I have my poets? Are all my poets here? Are they ready? Ha, 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 ha. I hope so. I hope you're ready. Okay, this is the rules. So listen up, because I'm only going to say this one time. One time. Slammers, your job is to get up here and read a poem you wrote three minutes or less. Time penalties do count tonight. And the timekeeper is an asshole. Judges, your job is to score the poem on a scale from 0 to 10 based on performance and content. That's how good of a poem you think it was and how well you think it was performed. A 0 is the worst thing, the most offensive, poorly performed piece of crap you've ever seen. A 10 makes you weep or laugh so hard that beer comes out your nose. Whatever you're drinking. Whatever you're drinking. Okay, uh, let's see. Poets, judges, oh yeah, audience. Audience, your job is to make a lot of fucking noise. Can you do that? <laughs> oh, that's convincing. Come on, guys. That's better. 
That's better. Audience, you clap for what you like, you holler, you stomp. You do whatever you do for what you don't like. We have a little tradition, though. First, we're going to bring up a sacrificial poet to get the judges calibrated, so to speak, to get them used to this whole situation, because we've got a lot of judges tonight that have never been to, to a slam before. Let me introduce them to you very briefly. Please clap for them and be nice to them until they give you know some city scores and then you can boo them. Judges, don't worry about that. Don't worry. You got nothing to worry about. Judging tonight, we have Cherie. She's in Kalamazoo because there's something in the water, she says, that keeps her here. Yeah. We have a judging team of Dawn and Terry, who are there, are there a little nervous because they've never been to a poetry slam. They don't know. They have no idea what they're getting into tonight. They just, they just walk through the door. They don't know what's going on. And we like that. We love that, in fact. We've also got uh, Danny Solis. I think you guys have already met him. I think, he, I think he's qualified to be a judge. We have... Ari, did I pronounce that right? I hope. Ari? Ari. Okay. Uh, she's from California. She's a, a former med student, and she's been to a couple of poetry slams, and uh, I think she's going to have a good time with us. And then we have Ernie, who came all the way from Sturgis. You heard him read earlier tonight. He was pretty cool. He's uh, never been here before either, so give him a big hand. Okay, here we go. Our sacrificial poet this evening. We make our features work their asses off here, by the way. So you should, you know, buy this guy's book. We get him up here in the open mic. We're going to get him up here for sacrificial. We're going to have him be a judge, and then he's going to, like, rock your world after the slam. Mr. Danny Solis. Are you ready? You did agree to do this sacrificial thing, didn't you? <laughs> What? <laughs> I'm doing it. Come up here, brother, and read your poem. Do you mind if I start back here? Oh, I'm sorry. It's tradition. I, I just, I didn't even, I... Pfft. Yeah. Inside that tangle will bloody us again. 
another shot, another bottle, more free time won't be enough. More gets broken, more gets scattered, and we want more. We want, 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 I want. The hungry fire inside pushes us out into the starry arms of Gusk's alabaster sister, white glow, moon tattoo, reminding us of all those other times when all we had was the struggle to hang on. Dreams running dry, creek bed, bone puzzle, rattle the pieces, hands full of tiny cuts on top of scars, trembling with nicotine, caffeine, booze, blood pumping, or lack of stars. Poets love stars. <laughs> and all those long, wide-eyed, fever thicket, nocturne purple spools of clouds. No stars to spill and sizzle on your lips. No moon to lacerate and remind you she clouds up, holds you at arm's length, and there is no easy medicine, no tough solution, no drink or a phone call in the middle of the night to ease this one up. Her letters sewn under your skin like broken glass. Your letters burning crown of thorns around your lonely head. You are nailed to this night. Of no dreams, no visions, no crack open the egg of miracles. You can't escape. It holds you tight. Crazy! Crazy coyote! Coyote! With his foot slipping gently out of a trap. One more breath. One more moment. One more chance. That was. That was us. Okay, judges, write down those numbers between one and ten, one decimal point, please. And as soon as you're done writing them down nice and big, hold them up. Hold them up so I can see them. Okay. Uh, you're going to have to write bigger. Uh, holy shit. Okay. You want to judge yourself? Okay. <laughs> We've got. Um, that. We've got an 8.5. Uh, and we have a 10, and a 10, and another 10. And another 10, I think. You really impressed the shit out of them. That's, that one's not going to be that hard to add. Okay, so we've hit the ceiling with our sacrificial poem. We can all go home. Okay, and I'm not hearing any time penalties or anything like that from my timekeeper, so that was a 30. You can make more noise than that. 
poetry dropping out of the ceiling, for Christ's sake. First up. His Uncle Drac. Give him a big hand. The older I get, the less comfort I glean from those people who've been technically dead and then revived, who describe moving towards a brilliant light. Perhaps this is how eternal torment begins. I draw away from the light. In darkness, there's peace while our culture runs towards the light, the solar deity, and our programming whispers, the light is good, is male, is action, is progress. The dark is bad, female, dangerous, and primitive. Every white bigot and every sexist of any race that I've ever met pin their shit up with that litany. My only recitation will be silence as I run into darkness, weightless, giddy, and nauseated into the vast shadowed spring that gives birth to myth. Let me embrace the void where magic still lingers and drive out the deadly certainty of the light. Light the shining killer, the joyless, the regimented, Light up the workday so the indentured can work longer hours than any ancient field slave. Light the foe of rest. Run, children, run from the light. I am the light and the life, saith the Lord, but who was the angel of light? Run, children, from the light where your faults will be exposed and detailed. From the light of control where the enlightened will be above you. Their words, the speech of masters to servants. Their bright laws laid in gold and silver gleaming. From the light of television, the light of altars, the light of the midday sermon. Run into dark to clear communication. Words still work here. Smoke and mirrors don't. Illusion lies impotent where your useless eyes close to conquer fear and sorrow. Draw strength from its source. Be cozened in survival because the light approaches. The light of Dresden before the morning of ash. The light of Hiroshima leaving human photo negatives on stone and concrete. The light in the eyes of the madmen who rule us. Run, children, into darkness. The light is coming. Cities spread their arms and the stars fade. Video flickers and sacred tales of ancient times are forgotten. Bright lights and bright baubles beckon and the tongues of our ancestors blur into oblivion. In darkness, we know ourselves for animals saddled with that spirit of light and we know the loss and the lie of it. In the light, we are rational enough to forget this, and something dies beyond reclamation. In darkness is a grandmother, aeons old, warm as summer storm cloud twilight, who would paint upon you with a murmuring thunder, magic and wisdom such as gods were weaned on. There isn't enough darkness. Let my deities be dark, for the light now comes. I will run into Today I'm strolling the streets of Dayton swapping stories with a fellow wordsmith. We're painting pictures of our childhood dances with words. 
For him, words on pages tumbled and twisted like so many mad monkeys. You see, he's dyslexic. But for me, it was backwards. I danced with autism. My earliest memory, two years old, beating my head against the floor until light spangled white behind the screens of my eyelids because I had no words of my own. They were locked down tight in the basement of my brain, and I struggled in vain, trying to beat claw, kick, snarl, howl, the elusive key loose, as I thrashed against the cage of my silence. Until a moment I wish I could remember. Three years old on the bathroom floor at 3 a.m., my mother pulling her threadbare exhaustion around her like a bathrobe as I launched my young frustration into yet another whirlwind of wordless fury, and she, too heartsick and tired for anything else, simply absorbed my beats, claws, kick, snarls, howls. Wrapping her weary arms around me, trapping my tiny, silent rage against her, and rocking me, and rocking me, and rocking me, and repeating the only mantra she could think of to soothe the bone-raw desperation of her pent-up child, I love you. And the first set of tumblers clicked into place, bringing howls into sobs as my cage door swung open, sending me on my way to speech. Six calm months and many sentences later, I'm nested in the shabby recliner, clutching the dime store cardboard of a golden book because now I am in love with the mysterious freedom of words. I know this one well because I constantly pad about with outstretched arms offering up books and please read a favorite flavor in my delicious new vocabulary. In this story, Goofy manages to serenade the animals of the zoo to sleep who had previously been thrashing against their cages. And to this day, I can taste the exact moment that those mystical black squiggles lurking beneath the pictures tumbled and twisted like so many mad monkeys and slid into glorious meaning, and I could read. <laughs> Tonight, I'm in a bathroom, in a bar, in Dayton, three minutes away from three minutes on stage, and I'm sending my words spiraling to Bridget, goddess mother of smiths, poets, and healers, and as I open my mouth to the mic, and the words come tumbling and twisting out, 30 years of pent-up language bursting out of its cage like it never has before, I realize, with light spangled white behind the screens of my eyelids, that the only difference between autistic and artistic is you and are. You are. I am. I am the smith, I am the poet, I am the healer, building word by word by word those mystical black squiggles that tumble and twist into the poems I have freed from the basement cage of my brain, wrapping their healing arms around and rocking and loving a three-year-old on a bathroom floor at 3 a.m. You guys are really getting the hang of this. Okay. Let's see those scores, judges. Okay. I got, keep them up, keep them up, please, keep them up, please. I got a 9.5, and a 9, and a 9.6, and a 9.8, and a 28.9 for Carrie. Give her a big hand. Number three. Number three. Number three. Red Bliss.
Now why you wanna pump on me, duh? I take a shot and dump on me, duh. I'm not your monkey with a cup, you see, generator. Throw a sucker, punch, I bleed internally. I'm talking about the power of forces versus indolent masses making spurious choices. Talking about a rhythm of voices versus goose stepping glasses making furious noises. Listen to me now or bark at me later. Fucking shit up, I'm your data generator. But mostly, I'm limitless. A genius at all times. That's me, baby. Fucking shit up. The data generator your mother warned you about. Run amok, you fashionable go-getters. I am master anarchist. Fear my mass control over technocrats. And also, I am a poet killer. I stomp on your soft, shiny cabbage skulls. I am a bad, bad, bad man. But mostly, oh no, here I go again, drifting into my private little fantasy island where I make up all my own rules, spin the roulette wheel madly, and fuck shit up. Talk about the power of forces versus indolent masses, maniacal choruses, breakbeat rhythm of voices versus reacting piranhas spewing furious noises. But mostly, Isis has just had a fallopian episode screaming, there is absolutely no logical use for parsley. And I have written a portrait of my distaste constructed of tungsten condoms. Grab your ankles, buster. I'll show you what a contract is good for. Because this is me pulling out your tongue full of sores before opening your cholera-infested belly and emptying it out for fertilizer. You fattened liver. You ignoble spleen. I hit you with my art. You retaliate with projectile vomit. And yet... This confusion is merely a cover, mostly a means to an end, provocateur, demonstrateur, because you stopped asking yourselves, where do we go from here? Now I'm the one thinking up tricks, robbing you of your sleep, confused and distant. Hear my mighty rumbling. My balls are jangling with anticipation. Hiss, shout, kick my teeth, and so what? In three months, my friends and I will be selling chapbooks for outrageous sums of money. We will disinfect you with vitriol, cleanse and shellac you with passion, smoke a bowl, then take a big antiseptic shit, warning the world that we've become murderers. Finally able to confess our demons, finally blaming no one but ourselves, possessing our shadows, stepping inside their empty skulls, singing requiems for our sorrow, knowing nothing separate exists. Here is only the whole of us. Here is only this moment cackling when our glass houses explode with shiny, ironic teeth because at last something has come to destroy our suffering fear. Talk about the power of forces, duh, versus indolent masses, making spurious choices, duh, celebrate our rhythm of voices, generator, rhetorical flashes, striking curious poses. Talk about a power of forces, duh, versus indolent masses, making spurious choices, duh, propagate this rhythm of voices, generator, soul matter seeker, striking curious poses. So take a swing of it, baby. I'm sure we'll laugh about it later. Fucking shake up. I'm your daughter, generator. We got two of those things, don't we? Okay. The suspense is terrible. I hope it lasts. Judges, hold up those numbers, please. I have. Cannot read that. <laughs> an eight. And an eight. And a 7.6. Ultimate boo. 
and a nine, and a ten. What? 25.0 from this fast calculating guy in the front row. Next up, moving right along. Dawn, Dawn is up. I listen for an old Neil Diamond tune on the radio. It's a remnant from a distant childhood someone told me about once. And I think it was maybe, think that maybe it was the birthday that unearthed this little girl face staring up at me from the pages of a story someone told me because it's not my blood falling quickly, quietly splashing the black ink of a poem. I'm not writing to tell you anything about the doll I loved when I was a child. She was in an attic among the dust and cobwebs among the shiny porcelain dolls I had my choice of on my eighth birthday. Dressed in rags, dirty from forgotten years, hidden in the corner of a musty wood room, but she shone like the sun off of a sand dune on the first truly warm day in June. I named her Messy Hair and cradled her all the way through the laughter of the relatives who couldn't see the beauty of this ragtag team. And I think it was maybe, think that maybe it was the birthday that made her pull my baby pictures out of an old box that hasn't been opened in at least 10 years, four states, seven cities, and she asks about rings and children as her mother hands me some extra food just in case you didn't notice. I'm not the one you should be talking to about these things. But... I think it's because I'm 25 now. I'm a big girl now. I'm measuring my life by things I haven't accomplished yet. I was supposed to be somewhere else, but I think it's the birthday talking now because I was telling you about a Neil Diamond song from the first movie I ever saw. I ran around for weeks chanting, E.T. phone home, and I think that I'm getting carried away now. But it's not my fault. I really did fall on my head one smack down face first on the cement trying to learn to jump rope. Just don't look down, she said. Just don't look down. Well, just don't look and see the flames shooting out of the back of my truck. Just don't look and see that E.T. died in the clenched jaw of Hannibal Lecter and Steven Spielberg is suing for the copyrights. Just don't look and see the scars from stepping on a wasp nester trying to jump the moon. At eight, I learned that Santa Claus wasn't real and the moon drifted farther away. And I think it was maybe the birthday that made me remember. The birthday that made me want to try again. Because this isn't a sad childhood I'm telling you about. It's just a story someone told me once. While the judges are figuring stuff out, let me tell you about something that happened to me this weekend. I went to the uh, annual Slam Masters meeting in Chicago. That's where every um, slam in America can send a representative to uh, debate and argue and bitch at one another all weekend. And uh, they also read poetry, and it's a great time. It's like a family reunion with people you actually have something in common with. And I was there this weekend 
And there's been a change in the rules this year. This year, the top 16 teams on finals night at the National Poetry Slam will compete against one another. And the winners automatically go to the finals. What that means for us is that our odds of taking the championship just increased by about three. So I'm really, really excited about it. Really excited about it. Judges, hold those numbers up. Okay, hold them up, hold them up. I've got an 8.7 and an 8 and an 8.9. Please, please keep them up for me, judges, just in case. And a 9.8 and a 9.4. Did you get them all, Mr. Scorekeeper guy? Awesome. Twenty-seven point oh for Don. <laughs> Next on my list is Melanie. I believe the greatest freedom a woman can possess is in her hips. Where else can she find her balance, center herself, stand up straight and walk like the queen she is? And where else can she place her hands in a grand gesture of authority and command in just one slight but swift move? And where else can he place his hands when he realizes he's being allowed the privilege of pulling you close? And where else can she strut with the grace of a peacock and still get her swerve on if need be? It is here their glory is manifest, coupled with the ability to conceive life and subsequently push it out from between those hips. And when they told you, ooh, girl, them is childbearing hips, it was a compliment, a blessing, if you will, a way to pay tribute to the splendor of your womanhood that is found within those hips. And it wasn't Helen's beauty that started the war in Troy. It was the sway of her hips through her grand court that made men want to fight for her. Cleopatra had only to saunter past Mark Anthony in some super sexy gaint before he was willing to sacrifice all. And when Romeo gazed upon Juliet and declared, I never saw true beauty till this night, what he really meant was, damn baby, I ain't never seen hips like those before. It's the hips that make men follow. It's the hips that make women envy. It's the hips that make the world go round. Baby, I've got hips that can hypnotize and charm a snake, put a belly dancer to shame. Hip huggers? Oh, hell no. Anything that touches these hips already hugs the abundance of God's gifts. These hips are jazz and springtime, wine and roses, the epitome of what hips should be. They are round and rolling, sleek and slender, big and small, sexy and sweet. Where else can you expect to find a woman's jewel but between those hips? With a gentle rock and a little roll, people are mesmerized by all that womanly wonder. Not just one, but two. And that is why I must swear to this, the woman can rock the vote, work beside a man, bring home the bacon, and take care of the kids. But her greatest freedom lies within her hips. And she will use them to dance and groove and sway to the beat of that freedom and never, ever, even break a sweat. Yeah. 
<laughs> yeah. Okay, while the judges are writing, I, I got a, another little quick announcement. Next week, Thursday, not this Thursday, next week, Thursday, the 12th, we're taking a bunch of poets to give an exhibition at Olivet College. And uh, any, any semifinalists who I have not talked to about this, you are invited. So see me if you want to go, because it's going to be a lot of fun. Where's Joe? Son of a... Okay, well, you know, I can't embarrass him, but Joe, who read in the open mic tonight, the po poem about pushing the buttons and all dying and all that, <laughs> he set this up for us. It's uh, going to be $1,000 for the team to go to Seattle. So everybody give a big hand for Joe, even though he had to go home, because he's helping us out. He's Okay, judges... Hold them up for me. Right on. I've got a nine. <laughs> and a nine. And a 9.1. And a 9.8. And a 10. Yeah, come on, make some noise. Make so much noise, in fact, that I can't hear the guy in the front row give me the score. Thanks. 27.9. Yeah. Okay, moving right along. Next up will be James. I am not your black token poet. You're only a poet to fill your racial anthology. Please, please, no apologies are needed. You have 26 onyx alphabets to choose from on white Paisley paper, 20 consonants, six vowels, A, E, I, O, and U. Ask me why I don't want to be your black token poet. America is almost ingrained in me that she did not want me or the people of my hue when I used to wake up early on Saturday mornings as an innocent child. She whispered me consciously and subconsciously, she spoke to me subliminally. Yeah, 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 little buddy. Bedrock is just like the burbs. There are no blacks here. The future looks bright for America in cartoon land. I never saw any non-whites on the Jetsons because Rosie did all the cooking and cleaning for you. Yet in reality, USA Today states that Mexican Americans are quote unquote the fastest growing minority population. I ask you, is it time to write a new script? Oh yes, my favorite show, The Super Ethnic Friends, where you had one woman, one Asian, one Native American, and I'll be damned, even one black man. The rest were 20-something white males with too much testosterone in their tights. Maybe it should have been called The Super CEO Friends since you want to be so systematic on superpowers. <laughs> well, you say, what about Fowled Albert? Hey, but hey, Fowled Albert. Hey, hey, hey. We eating chitlins today. You mean the b -b 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 Booker T. Washington show where the only commercial that ran during that hour was cherry-flavored Kool-Aid? Excuse me, I mean Crimson, because this is a poem. Because black kids don't fall down, that's why all band-aids look flesh. Whose flesh? The flesh of the palms of my hands, the flesh of the bottoms of my feet. When I used to play with my G.I. Joe with the Kung Fu grip, I want to have him look at the Confederate flag and give it a flip. Shave off his five o'clock shadow, give him a gold tea just like me. But you want me to be your minstrel, your mandate, your 
black token poet. When I sat in the English lit class, we discussed their eyes of watching God. The whole class is watching me as though I am the black messiah. And my interpretation speaks for a whole generation of blacks that have been coined Generation X, not to be confused with Malcolm. When I sit in that class, I heard the Melitha Esther song battering through my brain cells. I am not your charcoal Charlie poet, and I love my God-given 24-7 tattoo, but I am just a poet, but I ain't your fucking poet Jigaboo. Judges are writing. Let me tell you about what's coming up June 1st and 2nd. After this month-long extravaganza where we pick our team, and they're picking a team in Ann Arbor tonight, too, and they're picking teams all over the country in the next couple of months. On June 1st and 2nd, we are having an Invitationals here. It's on a Friday and Saturday night. There ain't going to be any bands that we got to get out of the way for, either. Craft Brow's given us the whole damn place, all weekend long, for a big poetry party. <laughs> Judges, hold them up. Hmm. We have a 9.4, and a 9.5, and a 9.5. And a 9.8, and a 9.8. Yeah! No, I made a mistake. I made a mistake. What the hell is that? That's a 7.8. We drop the low score, and we drop the high score, and we boo the low judge, and we, you know, whatever. 28.4 for James! <sighs> Next poet up, Mr. Dan Stevens. All my life, I was scared to admit it. Terrified of what the world might think of me if I came clean and uttered those three sinful words. I'm a poet. Like... An anarchist librarian finding stillness at 60 miles per hour alone atop her Harley hog, like that poet laureate that stayed in town just long enough for a quick buzz and shock treatments, like that professor that forced you to write sestinas and villanelles and broke you down with Shakespeare, Blake, and Emerson and told you never to rhyme in the very last line because it was tacky. <laughs> I'm a poet like Kerouacker. Kerouac or whatever the hell his name was, like that one guy that killed himself over his girlfriend and drank too much because his father was an asshole. I'm a poet like your Sunday waitress walking away with bean soup squishing between her toes and whistling old hippie tunes while she secretly plots your untimely demise. Like the midnight manager of an upscale hotel with a master's in English and no taste for corporate America. I'm a poet. I make bad decisions. Like Hemingway won a Pulitzer Prize and destroyed an array of exotic creatures and drank too much and killed himself because his father was an asshole. A, a Poet, a visionary, a broke, miserable visionary. 
Muse this. I'm a steady imperfectionist obsessing over the status quo, a surreal realist with alcoholic tendencies like that clerk you sneered at rolling past the drive through window or that guy on the bus wearing the fuck you hat that sat too close and smelled like empty beer cans or that other guy, the ex-Jehovah's Witness living in a bus all his, all his own, dressed in black, hooked on crack and strung out on the mean streets of Chicago. I'm a poet like Maya Angelou, only I'm a white guy and I'm broke and I'm miserable. But I'm a poet like that pop star that put out a book of free verse about how hard it was to be a pop star and then drank too much and killed herself because her father was an asshole. I'm a poet. I take chances linking words together, showing you illusions, changing your perceptions, and moving mountains with imagination. I can carelessly and callously arrest your absolution, then effortlessly, gently rip your heart out with a torrid composition about how I want to drink too much and kill myself because my father was an asshole. Like Shelley on an absinthe binge, like Cummings on a losing string. I can dance in perfect circles, justify corrupt intentions, nullify direct intent, a poet like my mother and my father and my unborn children singing songs of love and lacing them with lusty melodies, chanting mysterious mantras and always taking the road less traveled, a poet who never misses a chance to tell you how he really feels. Muse this, I'm a poet and I'm not afraid to say it anymore. <laughs> You guys having fun? Right on. You gonna come back next week and have more fun? Same poets, different poem next week. Next week's feature, by the way, comes to us all the way from the world-famous New Yorkian Poets Cafe in New York City. His name is Tehut Nine, and he was on last year's New Yorkian Slam Team. So you don't want to miss him. Judges. Please. I got a nine. I got a 9.8 and a 9.6 and a 10 and a 10. 28.8 for Dan Stevens. We got two poets left in this first semifinal round. And the next one is Todd. When I was a semi-suicidal teen, I used to fantasize about my funeral. I would see myself laid out in a cherry wood coffin lined in white silk. I think about who would come and who would not? What would they say about me? I imagine all those girls who'd always wanted me but had been too shy to ask, loudly weeping for their irrevocable loss. All the schoolyard bullies would beg my dead body forgiveness and Prince and the Revolution would be there playing. Sometimes it snows in April, which was my favorite song. But even then, I knew that funerals are only temporary stoppages in time. Even if the celebration of my life was the kick-ass event of the season and they had a special page in the high school yearbook devoted just to me, eventually, people would stop talking about the funeral, stop talking about the dead guy. I would pass slowly out of memory. My photographs would gather dust. My little brother would inherit my room. At 16, I had far more potential than accomplishments, and no one remembers potential. I'm not ready to die right now, 
But the idea of immortality still keeps me up nights. The very thought of never dying, never dying, never dying kills me. I have foreseen myself wrapped in linen, arms crossed across my chest, lying in the sarcophagus, laid in the tomb. That vision is far more comforting than me at 450, having read all the books and learned all the languages and tried every sexual position. There is nothing left but loneliness and sorrow. I still think about my funeral. You can bet I'll be watching, so don't you dare bury me in some cheap white pine box. I want to be bronzed and displayed in the Smithsonian. I want all my poetry and letters and journals to be published posthumously. I want a full-length Japanese anime movie made depicting my life. My funeral will be my last-ditch effort at validation. All my friends in heaven and hell will be there. I'm talking Hendrix and Hemingway, James Joyce and Janis Joplin. I don't want them to think I didn't know anybody before I died. You invite everyone I've ever known. I don't care if they love me or hate Hated me. If heaven's got beers, I'll be drinking right along with my relatives, all tanked and weeping and laughing at the same time. And I'll be watching you, all quiet dignity, surrounded by the loving, still loving you, still trying to hold you up, though you never needed to be held. I'll be watching and remembering each touch, each word we shared. So if you have to make, wear black, make it that black evening gown, the one with the slit that goes almost all the way up, because I'll be dancing and singing with you long into the night. Yes, while the judges are writing, let me tell you, we had a small error in the last score, but we caught it and we fixed it, because we're cool. The actual score for Dan Stevens was 29.4. <laughs> Judges, are you ready? Okay. 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 I have a 9.6. That's not bad. I got a 9.8. And a 9.9, .9 and a 10, and a 10. So excited. My God. 29.7. Ha ha, Todd. Okay. We've got one more poet in the first round of semifinals. You gotta wait a whole nother week for the second round, but that's okay, because we got a great feature coming up right after this. The last poet of the evening. Give it up for John. What happens when the paperboy starts delivering broccoli instead of the Saturday edition? I mean, who could argue with the paperboy about what readers really want? It's a choice between a vegetable that goes great with cheese or cheesy ads about shit nobody wants. See, folks, it's a hard choice to make. And I frankly, I think it could be too much for John Q. Public to try and figure out. 
After all, we've been swallowing so much bullshit from the print, televised, internet, bus boards, billboards, restroom signs, radio, and various other forms of subliminal warfare for so long, we don't even know how to shit without using the toilet paper that's cottony soft. So to those open-minded enough to listen, I give a call. Wake up and smell the lousy idea that the media pitches to us all the time like so many loads of crap tossed from a barnyard pitchfork. Wake up and rejoice, for you too can be free from commercial tyranny. How can we be free, you say? How can we get rid of all those things which force our brains to appreciate little jingles and smiling dancing breakfast foods and that crazy art deco bullshit about wedding rings costing three months' salary? Now you bet your ass, that one bugs me. Let's look at this one in particular since I know that somewhere down the great toilet flush I call life, I will eventually have to give someone a wedding ring. And if at that time of giving I make $30,000 a year, that makes it make, make an average of $2,500 a month. And if I spend three months worth on a ring, I'm spending $7,500. Now, frankly, I know a lot of girls that would rather have a $2,000 ring and a $5,500 car instead. Three months, my ass. No, I know damn well those bastards are only trying to get me to spend my life freaking savings on a shiny stone. And I'm not going to do it. And I'm not going to buy the scented toilet paper either, because let's face it, that's just dumb. <laughs> and I'm not going to buy Budweiser, because it has all those great ads about talking frogs and lizards and ferrets, because it tastes like shit. Take to use my mind, and you should too. Come, consumers, open your eyes to a new world. It looks just the same, and it smells just the same but it doesn't cost as much. Buy your pickles at Aldi. Buy your socks and underwear from Walmart. Buy your shit where you can get it cheap. No, I don't need to tell this to the baby boomers. I mean, they're always talking about how their kids spend too much money on tattoos and piercings and not sensible things like huge SUVs that use tons of gas when the only off-roading they do is to drive up their own driveways. I mean, the older folks would never fall to the pressure of commercial advertising. They're too damn smart for that. Oh, wait. Yeah, they get suckered into this commercial corporate crap just as much as the rest of us. And the naysayers start to scream. If I have the money, why not spend it on opulence and pretty things that sparkle? <laughs> hey, jackass. Not everyone can afford money on that shit. Some people look for their next meal in a dumpster. Think of that. Try giving that money you were going to spend on a brand new 46-inch HD TV and just buy the 36-inch tube instead. Give the other three grand to some poor bastard who could afford health insurance and has to pay 400 a month for medication. Try it. You might just feel good. And that's worth more than anything with an Amber Crombie and Fitch label on it. I promise. Okay, first round is drawing to a close. Judges are quick. Hold him up. I've got an 8.9 and a 9.5, is that correct? 7.5. From the judge, I can't read. And I have a 9.7, and a 9.8, and a 10. 
All right, I want... I want... Yeah, I do want a cigarette. How many people want a cigarette? How many people need a beer? How many people have to go to the bathroom? Okay. I think we're going to take a short break after we get the score. Final score of 27.4 for John. Give it up for John. Come on, give it up for John. Give it up for all the poets tonight and the judges and the scorekeeper and the timekeeper and the people taking your money at the door. And yeah, that's about it. I haven't done all that much. Five minutes. And then the feature, Don't Leave. Okay. Just because the slam's over doesn't mean the show's over. Okay. There's a little story I want to tell you guys just briefly. It's story time. It's story time. In the spring, some of you have heard this story because I tell it like the ancient mariner. I just tell it over and over again to whoever will listen and most people who won't. In the spring of 1998, I lost my job, my poetry show, and the woman I was in love with all in the space of Two weeks. And I was feeling, as I recall, I was feeling pretty shitty about it. And I went to visit some friends of mine in Austin, Texas, to ask them some advice on what I should do with my pathetic life. And that's where my life and Poetry Slam met. And it was like divine inspiration. And the thing... This is the part of the story I, I don't think I've ever told. The thing that gave that inspiration focus and context and direction was a brief conversation that I had with Danny Solis. This guy, when he talks about slam poetry, nine times out of ten, he's not going to talk about judges and scores and time penalties. He's gonna use words like honor and discipline and art. And he is, in a small way, largely responsible for us being here tonight to share poetry with one another. And the best way I can think of thanking him is to give him this stage in your ears. Danny Solis. Thank you. Thanks very much. That's um, 
It was very lovely. Which mic sounds better? This one? Or this one? Or do they sound the same? Okay. Well, you know, I did that Coyote poem, and uh, that was the poem I was going to open my set with. So now i got to do something different. But before I do, I would please like for all of you to give another round of applause to the people that slammed tonight. And uh, I'm, I'm going to excellent. I'm going to talk some about this Kalamazoo scene and team and my opinions, but I'm also going to do some poetry, mostly poetry, and I'll do some shit talking in between. And I'm going to talk about the moose, too, because there's a, a moose head on the wall in the bar in Albuquerque where we slam. And, uh, and I host, and I always threaten to put the moose head on at some point <laughs> in the night just to get the audience going. And uh, so would almost everyone. Except for the owners of the bar, I'm sure. Um, I've done this poem with the curse words taken out for kids a lot of times, and they always want to know, did all that stuff really happen? And yes, it all, it's all in there. It's all true. The day twisted inside its 24-hour skin on its afternoon-evening bones like a lost word or a fragmented memory must in its incompleteness, remind itself of its own stray dog, stone and shoe existence, happening in an odd jittery dance, hopping on a stench-dappled corner. Random comment of a mad derelict making your brief walk for a coffee or a movie. Another consideration of the multiple fucked-up unfolding of this 50-cent city drama, concrete comedy, sack of bones and blood and breath, whuffing itself along and jagged shuffle just out of your view, the grimy hand outstretched for coin. The fingers you don't want to touch. And it's there, right there. That little song that says, what of that one? What storybook left out in the rain? The colors blur, the pages stick together, swollen and steaming in the sun. It was, it was. Sing songs a bum on a balcony, breaking the starched afternoon, afternoon boredom with his booze breath bellowing, brandishing his bottle like a glassy, glinting banner. And the normal people in the shops, on the buses, seem less real, more remote, methodically chopping off pieces of themselves according to an agreed-upon plan. Four walls, three meals, two weeks vacation, disposable income, entertainment. And I know enough of that bargained ballad that sighs and chases its tail. And I was too slow to stop the fight, the pipe fight in the hallway. Kid with his face split open, blood splattered everywhere. And this is just one day, writhing on its rack of sky and sunlight, my bones cracking like ice cubes popping out of their tray in this crazed arena as I dodge the mire of bitterness. You can toss me in the lake, but you can't make me drink. And my girlfriend says, I just want to know where I'm going with my life. And she's going where this whole parade is headed. Lemmings, an apt metaphor, though they are less noisy and self-involved than all of us. And the evening 
shakes like a great wet bear spraying stars into the gloaming blue and the sun reaches a finger in an improbable curve through the clouds and over the hip of nighttime and there in the day's departing spotlight a dragonfly vibrating drinking up enough heat and light to last till dawn wings shimmer and flick he has eyes and guts and breath and legs his heart pounding 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 tiny engine better than the ocean in his blue black armor and if i can draw breath in the sun's next gaudy big thigh arrival i will scan the air for him tomorrow When I first started slamming, it was in Boston. And um, if you know about slam, you know that Boston is a very um, contentious slam scene. I mean, you, they'll fuck your shit up in Boston. And uh, it was fun. It was fun for me. But there's also been a lot of talk about a certain style of slam, like slam is this or slam is that. And slam can be whatever. Thanks for coming, y'all. Slam can be whatever you want it to be, you know, I think. And it's up to the artist to define what slam is and to lead the audience, not to follow the audience. But anyway, blah, blah, blah. Um, I used to slam with this poem. I don't anymore. I slammed with it while I was in Boston, and I never lost when I slammed with this poem. So you just figure out for yourself if it's really a slam poem or not. In a month surrounded by the wrought iron fence of winter. When spirits are unwatchful and not easily summoned, we will sit in a house of cold hallways and warm rooms. And in the half-lit gas-heated closeness, we shall drink red wine, the taste of spice and dust and memory, nimbus of talk and intoxication pushing back winter's chill fingers. And in this liquor and conversation conjured space within a space, shoes slip off, sweaters slide from shoulders, we reveal scars. Their translations nearing perfection only when spoken by the interpreter, clad only in a howl, in a towel, standing before the heater, wet hair dripping onto skin that shivers at the naked blade of clear remembrance and uncluttered conveyance. The wine is gone. A bottle of coffee liqueur remains. The circle of heat and talk shrinks to the bed's rectangle. Winter's wind shakes the windows like a great gray bear. A draft more supple than a cat icily slinks the hallway, slips under the door, breaks wave-like upon the bed island where under blankets, limbs and words flutter and tangle. Scars are kissed. Sticky mouths seek and suck to each other, powerful and precise as swans landing on water. Then, no words. Cats race in the hallway. The bear shakes harder. Derelict clouds hurry by with loads of snow. And the stars whiten fiercely with winter and hold their places. Thank you. Wow, instead of saying clad only in a towel, I said clad only in a howl. That was kind of cool. 
I think, you know, I'm going to have to use that. But you can use it, too, if you want. Just take it and start to do something with it. Thanks for staying, y'all. It feels kind of anticlimactic after the slam. It's like, okay, now there's this guy who's going to do stuff, you know. But, um, you know, I have to say, y'all are really lucky to have the kind of team that you had represent you last year at the Nationals. And, uh, I mean, because there are teams, you know, like Bar 13 with all these superstar motherfuckers and shit, you know, with the, who are on HBO and going to Europe and blah, blah, blah. But um, the um, the Kalamazoo team really won my heart with its its um its spirit and uh, teamwork, and uh, in my mind was a better team than some of the teams that they lost to. So, yeah, you applaud for that. That's the kind of shit you applaud for. So anyway, I'm gonna do pull one out of the songbook here. See the fat man, Fat Albert, the fattest human on earth. Walking down the midway with Vicky to the clank roll and thunder of the giant ride machinery hidden behind stretched once bright now fading canvas. Lights, lock bars, cheap speakers blaring cheap pop hits, coupons, asphalt, and lines for rides like the Himalaya, Wild Mouse, Caterpillar, Tilt-A-Whirl, Bubble Bounce, presided over by road-weathered men tattooed slack with boredom, cigarettes dangling from indifferent lips, and Vicky says, let's go to the freak show. We go to the one where for a certain number of coupons you get to view a variety of freaks. More freaks per dollar. What a bargain. I have forgotten most of what I saw in that shadowy tent that day, but I remember Fat Albert. Not black like the cartoon Fat Albert. Surprisingly, not eating. Just sitting, watching TV. The barker led the crowd from freak to freak to freak, giving the spiel, and each one did their little freak dance. Then it was Albert's turn. The barker talked about how many pounds of bacon and how many dozens of eggs and biscuits Albert had for breakfast. Then Albert gobbled Twinkies for the crowd. Then pushed the play button on a cheap cassette deck. Little Richard, Tinny Howlin, all Rudy, Tootie Fruity. And Albert began to swing his enormous gut from side to side. Bulbous, fat-filled pendulum pushing open his shirt's bottom button, exposing a fish-white triangle of skin. And while the crowd laughed, I looked into the eyes of this man, this fat Albert, and saw something less than hollow, like a negative space. His mind was somewhere else, dreaming of not even God knows what. Slim, beautiful women, a sun-filled road he had walked as a child. Porterhouse, rare, salad and stuffed baked potato. A Gilligan's Island rerun. The cool hands of his mother on his forehead, and he caught me looking and flashed silent anger. Get out of my eyes, you son of a bitch! And I did. I did. 
And then Vicky and I tumbled back out onto the blue skied autumn streaked midway. And later that night, me playing percussion with a reggae funk band, pounding the congas, guzzling in a stout, drinking faster than usual, drumming harder than usual. I could not drink or drum Fat Albert's eyes or the crowd laughter out of my head. Could not shake the thought that I was a part of a so-called civilization that lived off and laughed at and sucked on loneliness. And I played so hard my fingers split open like they hadn't in years. And I wrapped my bloody swollen digits around a fresh one, icy cold. Drained it in two pulls on my way to the dressing room where I burst in, grabbed our drummer David by his jacket, pulled him toward me and said, look man, if I go crazy and start smashing shit and they come take me away, tell everybody it wasn't the Guinness. It wasn't the Guinness. It was the fat man. Thank you very much. Gonna gonna do one now, another one, another poem. Okay. This one is kind of um, kind of about remembering what joy is like, because sometimes I think we forget, and then it surprises us, and then it's really good. That's better than the poem. Okay, I'm skipping the poem. It was just then, walking through that cold, trash-strewn parking lot, talking nonsense. Goofy discourse on ramshackle, badly listing garage as new apartment. Rusty caved-in cabinet says, new furniture. Abandoned sagging jalopy as, new family car. You spoke casually, mentioned Harry Parch and his legacy of percussion, cloud chamber bowls, diamond marimbas, and the spoils of war. The wind kicked chill. Frigid nuzzle buck, you stepped liquidly to, to my side, took my arm in both your hands nestled a kiss on my surprised jaw. And something like a coal, like an ember, flared inside me, a small flame that had slept for a long, long time under ashes, awake again. I hardly recognized it. And then Unbidden, the memory arrived whole. 13-year-old me walking down McKinney Avenue on my way to Delia Ortiz's house. She and her sister and their mother lived in an apartment above the Dallas Tortilla factory. And there was a certain point in my walk when I could smell the corn steaming on the tortilla presses. Then around another corner I could see the neon sign. Could smell the menudo. I could almost, I felt like I could almost smell Delia across the car exhaust, over the concrete, and I felt so light, like maybe I could float the rest of the way up to the balcony where Delia and I would sit and listen to Al Green and kiss for hours. Our 13-year-old mouths biting into that excruciating mystery thrill. And that was the feeling that day in that cold parking lot when you took my arm. Something like that. Something I had forgotten till just then.
Thank you. Thanks. Um, how much time do I have? As much as I want. Okay. Um, this poem, the next poem I'm going to do, um, it makes a lot of references to a poem by Langston Hughes. Um, the poem is Harlem. Or sometimes it's known as a dream deferred. And because I have time and it's not a slam, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to recite the, the Langston Hughes poem. And um, it also makes reference to, um, well, it actually, there's a Coltrane song in there too, John Coltrane. So anyway, here's the poem by Langston Hughes, known as Harlem. What happens to a dream deferred? Does it dry up like a raisin in the sun? Or fester like a sore, then run? Does it crust and sugar over like a syrupy sweet? Or does it stink like rotting meat? Does it sag like the heavy load? Or does it explode? Please applaud for Langston Hughes. Jump in Jesus. No, don't applaud. It'll fuck up my flow. Now, always applaud Langston Hughes. Okay, now, now my poem, my sort of, uh, not a response, but an extrapolation on that poem. A love supreme, a love supreme, a love supreme, supreme, supreme. A dream deferred, a dream deferred, a dream deferred. Langston's words rolling through the bones of Coltrane's music in my mind every day. The TV flickers with a dream deferred exploding. L.A., city of modern-day Gamoran angels wrapped in wings of fear and fire. Smoke and danger billowing black into the blue California sky. Amidst the pillaging and random bullets, I see a large man sagging along with a heavy load of memory. He is older than me. Old enough to remember Martin and his dream toppled from the mountain, raped, knifed, and left on a trash heap. Old enough to remember Malcolm's public execution and those two dangerous Irish Catholic boys, Jack and Bobby, butchered by the business-as-usual CIA, our collective consciousness crested and sugared over with syrupy sweet lies. Old enough to remember Angela Davis in chains and J. Edgar Hoover in lingerie Old enough to remember Anita dragged through a pit of video slime by a cadre of good old boys with smiles like rotting meat. Clarence stinking with his 30 pieces of Supreme Court silver. Old enough to remember Dallas policeman Daryl Kane, 357 Magnum, put to the head of 12-year-old Santos Rodriguez, trigger pulled the memory a festering sore in the mind of Santos's 13-year-old brother who was forced to watch the dream, the dream, the dream drying up like the bludgeoned face of Emmett Till in the casket. And this man walks through the riot of blinding L.A. sunshine. His hands are empty of weapons or looted merchandise. His hands are as empty as his big breaking heart soon will be. As he walks, tears streaming down his face, he says, it's not right. It's not right. It's not right. And in the chaos and carnage of this moment of these last 500 years, reflected in the broken glass and written in the rising smoke, our collective heritage, undeniable and ubiquitous, as Americans, we must be able to claim the grace and tenacity of Cesar Chavez, American, the bittersweet magnolia tragedy of Lady Day, American, the magic and visions of Black Elk, American, the courage and dignity of Barbara Jordan, American. But for now, the cities wait, a breath, 
a spark, a moment away from burning. And the fight still rages every day, every day, every day, every day I wake up and you give me another reason to commit an act that you'd consider treason. And that's because you have declared an open season on me and my brothers and a whole lot of others such as women and all their rights. Sexist violence roams this land in an evil blight, but we'll seize the day and take back the night. We're talking 50 million points of fucking fed up light. We'll never quit until we get this thing right. And my hero rises impossibly over my shoulder like a second sunrise, reminding me of the only gift we are ever truly given, of the only gift that is ever worth giving. A love supreme, a love supreme, a love supreme. Thanks, I was gonna do three more poems, if that's okay. Three more. Is that all right? Okay, okay. <laughs> Thank you. So good. Okay. They're just looking for a little response. All right. Um, well, we'll see how you feel. They're, you know, they're not short ones. Um, sometimes I like to mix it up like that, but I don't, I don't know. I'm just doing what I feel like doing. The body remembers. The body remembers. The body remembers what the mind would choose to forget. The body pulled by a hidden hook of unforgetfulness into a meadow of the brain thick with memories, scattered like dead wood and blossoms, stones and thorns. The body swims the lake of the soul while the mind lurches, careens, chatters in the city of the intellect toward artificial destination. The lake Ripples with the light of reflection, fingers heavy with a translation of wave crash, hot sun salt kisses, white red black clay cliffs into skin, into nerve, into blood, into bone, into a spin that pushes the mind from the comfortable couch of forgetting to the sudden chasm drop off of a memory. A falling backward into a lake that boils with remembered thrashing of two bodies in deep night's blue palm where every grunt and wallow, every nip and drool were perfection that spread through your hips up into your spine like smoke and flowers and whiskey. The shape and cadence of desire slipping from the cool murk of the subconscious, uncoiling like a sleek reptile from the mud of forgetfulness, rising toward the well-ordered light of conscience and logic, hunger bent on heat and blood, shattering the surface to claw the air of the brain, shaking like a mad black flower as the teeth and the breastbone and the soles of the feet remember joys and angers and lovers we can never call back. Like drunken, heartbroken, fallen angels remember dawn and moonlight and the Milky Way and the precise anger of the melancholy mechanic that set in motion breath and orbit, tentacle and wave, talon and magma and the indigo jungle of night that surrounds the one that listens, that listens, that listens. To the answering machine, tape loop reply to the question asked by the blood in the solitary heart. The solitary heart. Trembling with little earthquakes, popping underneath the surface of the skin, curling with a fire that appears like a mad jazz in the neon ceilinged brain cafe till the guitars and the saxophones and the poems can't say it. And we discard them 
for hips and liquors and lips and needles and hands and tongues and eyes and mouths and corners of the night we never imagined, never wanted to dream those five hungry hounds, the senses devouring all. And as dawn casts us out into the scrubby light and hangs us again with the dull yoke of the day and the mind puts the problems on to boil, smiles and gathers secrets and waits and remembers the body remembers the body remembers the body who is in a relationship out there? Anybody in a relationship? A few people? All right. Okay, here's a relationship poem. It's kind of silly, but it's kind of serious. I hope you like it. And I let you drive home drunk after that clumsy 5 a.m. kiss. And I laid in bed cursing myself for being so selfish because I knew you had a boyfriend. And we had already talked about just staying friends. But mostly, I laid in bed cursing the wide world for its series of unflinching machinations that had brought me to this moment of nighttime. My arms not around you. My mouth as hungry as it's ever been for anything or anyone. My thirst like a slap as I thought again of my drunken lunge toward every bit of you. But that was a different night than the one I really want to talk about. <laughs> this other one was a Friday night and your boyfriend was out of town and we were both nervous but we drank wine anyway or maybe because of and your dogs followed us out into the backyard where I built a fire. And I felt like this was some sort of mystical romantical test. And I built it just the way my friend Shane had taught me. A one match fire. And it actually lit with just one match. And I was quite relieved. And never mind about the possible metaphors here. Too obvious, too cheesy. But I was proud of my little fire. And you rolled up a wheelbarrow full of more wood. And there was plenty of room in the pit left for more fire. And I thought, what if I'm being too timid? What if she's used to her boyfriend building a really big fire? <laughs> and this little fire leaves her totally unimpressed and, in fact, a little disappointed. <laughs> so all of a sudden, I am trapped in my head in a fire-making competition with your boyfriend, who isn't even there, but still stands between us like a wall. And so I begin snapping cedar branches from a nearby woodpile and tossing them and the boards and the logs from the pit to the wheelbarrow into the pit, drinking more wine, trying to seem casual about everything. <laughs> but I am wondering about my place in the fire-making competition. And I am using all my pyrotechnique to make a huge, hot, yet contained blaze. And the thing is so big, the dogs withdraw. And you get nervous, not about us this time, but about the house possibly igniting. <laughs> and you hop over a smoldering hay bale to rescue an old wooden owl that has burst into flames. And I 
Stand and stoke and stir the fire with a seven-foot iron rod I found nearby. True story. <laughs> Feeling like the king of campfires. And I am tempted to question your impression of my fantastic fire skills with pet name-laced questions like, hot enough for your monkey lips. How about that fire, grasshopper wings? What do you think of my incredibly mind-blowing and obviously far, far superior to your boyfriend's fire-building and tending skills now? Chinchilla hips. But instead, we simply sit and drink more wine and share stories of our childhoods. You tell of the secret swamp and the sinking mattress raft. I tell of the Thanksgiving where my gang of cousins beat another gang of cousins with sticks. <laughs> and the fire growls and crackles and the fire pops and chortles and we laugh and drink more wine and share those stories and we are both still nervous. Thank you very much. The kids always want to know, is the fire thing really a penis metaphor? No, I'm just kidding. They don't ask that. All right. I did this poem last night at Weeds in Chicago. Anybody ever been to Weeds in Chicago? If they don't, if they don't like you at Weeds, they'll boo you off the stage. It's kind of like the Green Mill. And the bartender has a gun under the bar. And he's threatened bad poets with it, that the gun before. But if they like you, they'll start, he'll start feeding you shots of tequila. And um, Patricia Smith was there one night. And she knows Sergio, the bartender. And uh, he was trying to get her to drink a shot of tequila. And she was like, Sergio, I don't want to drink any tequila. You know? And so he takes the gun out from under the bar. And he puts it to his head. Like he pulls the fucking, takes the safety off and pulls the fucking hammer back. It's like a 38. And he says, he says, you gotta drink that tequila or I'm gonna kill myself. And so, <laughs> so she's like, all right, just fucking calm down. And she drinks a shot of tequila and then he shoots a hole in the ceiling. And she was like, what the? And he was like, I just wanted to show you I was serious. So. I did. That's my little weed story, but I wasn't even there for that one. But I was there last night, and I had a great time, and I did this poem, and now I'm going to do it for you. Um, you've been a great audience, really. Thank you so much for sticking around. And um, thanks to everybody in Kalamazoo. I love Kalamazoo. And I do have a book for sale. See, I'm manipulating you. I tell you I love you so that you will do things for me. <laughs> It's a little too close to the truth. Okay, now the poem. I was 
searching the shadows for the bloodstains from the riots. Student-led anti-war demonstrations when Mexican-American guardsman bayoneted Chicano student, having traded obsidian blade and Toledo steel for oiled and honed army issue and fixed position point and thrust, and the blood blossomed from earth-brown skin. And I was tracking down those puddles so I could put my fingers into them like some kind of coagulated holy water blood pudding and maybe I could put in my thumb and pull out a heart. Chemanahuac, city of the Aztecs, heart of the one world, beating like a gory jewel in the undulating copper sun of my dreams and I lost focus, closed my eyes, vertigo unfurling when a hand gripped my shoulder hard. I opened my eyes and there he was. In the dream flesh, Cesar Chavez, el mero mero del movimiento chicano. Pos, que diablos tienes, vato? He asks me. And I think my dance card of demons is way too long to list. But before I can answer, he punches me in the gut, a beautiful right that knocks me on my ass and leaves me struggling for breath. He stands over me, radiating that terrible, sweet, saint's intensity, eyes, pools of onyx fire, glittering love and destruction. I thought you were nonviolent, I gasp. <laughs> you call that violence, he asks. Sincerely amused and appalled, the only violence here is your immense ignorance, pendejo. Dip your fingers into the dried up blood of students. What crap? Why not go for fresh blood? Dip your fingers into the blood of Zapatistas dying in the jungles of Chiapas. Dip your fingers and hands into the shattered dreams of immigrants being hounded by the border patrol coyotes in La Migra. Dip your fingers, hands, arms into all the sangre chicano being spilled by gangs, the cops and clicas in the streets and callejones of Dallas, Chicago, L.A. and Albuquerque. You think it stopped flowing just because the PBS special ended? just because you quit thinking about it, just because there was no one around to yell, Viva la raza, and wake your big ass up. He grabbed my face and shoved it into a mirror and said, that's violence. Every day you don't speak the language of your grandmothers and your grandmothers, grandmothers, that's violence. And I knew he was right. And I turned to him, but he was gone. And in his place was Santos Rodriguez a wavering 12-year-old angel with half his head blown away by the Dallas police, and I trembled as he took my hand, and we took flight, rose into the air, and we flew backwards past the L.A. riots. Smoke and fire licked at us, and we rose higher. Screams from furnace heat, napalms, victims, Vietnam, and we rose We're given this gift, don't you know, the, the ability to understand, yet no one wants to understand. We're given the ability to read. <laughs> I mean, read Nietzsche, read Thomas Mann, read Spengler, Joyce, Rambeau. Hell, read fucking Alice in Wonderland, huh, Osborne? <laughs>